This is the second and final piece of a two-part episode on Moses and the history of the world. If you want to start at the beginning, the first part of the show is online at widerbible.com or in your favorite podcast library. If you've listened to that part already or like showing up in the middle of a story and figuring things out on your own, that starts now. As a quick recap, during the first three days of creation, the details in the story Moses told undermined one or another part of the Egyptian, Babylonian, or Canaanite religions that his audience was probably familiar with. First, Moses' God appeared above the water, rather than coming out of it. Then, Moses gave credit to his God for making the sky on day two and the land on day three things that gods in the other religions supposedly did. The story he was telling was a direct challenge to the gods of those other places. He was striking at the foundation of what people believed about the world. And in this part of the story, that challenge went to the next level. On the fourth day of creation, God makes the sun, the moon, and the stars. And this seems strange. This seems a lot like Moses has cause and effect backward. Three days ago, light was the first thing created. But it's only now that God creates the sun? Something seems off. If you're confused by this, you're in good company, because Jewish scholars have often struggled with this part too. In trying to figure out this light before there was a sun idea, in trying to make sense of it, they've come up with a few different theories. The first idea is that the light God made on the first day of creation was too nice, too perfect for what came later. So God took that light away, and here, on the fourth day, he replaced it with the sun, a light that was, apparently, not as nice. Another theory suggests the light from the first day was coming from everywhere. It was a sort of ambient lighting. And it's only here on the fourth day that God collects all that spread out light and compresses it into one spot turning a planet that had some sort of glow into a planet with a sun. One other option, and one that I think is kind of amusing, goes back to the second day of creation. That theory claims the sky God made on day two. That sky accidentally blocked the light God made on day one. And now, here, a couple of days later, God has to make the sun so the world could have light again. Those are some of the theories people have come up with, but... If you set them aside, I think the right answer is simpler, though it comes from the other end of the Bible. One of the authors of the New Testament, John, at one point makes the comment that God is light. Later on, in another book, when John is trying to explain what the world will be like in the future, he says that God would light up the world himself, and there wouldn't be any need for the sun. So, maybe that's how it was at the start of creation, too. Maybe for the first three days, God was the Earth's light source. I admit, this can seem complicated. It can seem like God did things out of order by accident. It's as if he forgot to make the sun and came back a few days later to finish things up. But I don't think that's why things happened this way. Remember, 
all through the story, Moses is talking to people with a different background, and he's picking apart the religions those people follow. So far, he's taken away the accomplishments of their gods, and now he's taking away the gods themselves. In Egypt, the sun was a primary god. It was the one who came up out of the ocean of chaos at the start of time and created other gods. If you went to Babylon, the people there were involved in moon worship. And it was Babylon who also gave us the earliest examples of astrology, the belief that the stars could predict events on Earth. Compare those beliefs with what Moses is saying. For the first three days of creation, whether God provided the light himself or not, Moses is saying that the sun, moon, and stars, the gods of those other religions, didn't exist. And you can see the emphasis in the way Moses tells the story. Through the first three days of creation, as God made something, he also named it. God named the day, the night, and the sky. He named the land and the sea. He gave everything a specific title. Then, on day four, when the sun, moon, and stars were made, God didn't give them names. He ignored them. In the story, Moses only gives descriptions. He calls them a bright light for the day and a dim light for the night. These things, things every other nation thought were gods, they were so irrelevant, God didn't even bother to give them names. If you're someone listening to Moses' story, think about what that does to your worldview. At this point, Moses has taken away all the accomplishments of the gods you believed in, and now, in essence, he said those gods didn't even exist. If you didn't realize it before, at this point, you have to know Moses' history isn't going to play well with anything you already believed. There's no way you could take Moses' story and make it work with the mythology from Egypt or Babylon or Canaan. Moses had removed too many supports. He'd cut too many ties. This isn't going to be a revision of the story you know. It's a different story. And at some point here, you'll have to either accept it or reject it. Because Moses is making it clear, there's no room for it to get along with anything else. At the end of the fourth day, God has filled the sky with light. And now, God starts filling the earth. On day five, God creates the fish and the birds. When John Calvin and Martin Luther read this part of the story, they figured fish and birds were somehow related, so God created them on the same day. We don't really know why it came in this order, but two things stand out. First, on day five, unlike the plants God created previously, this was the first time God made something with life in it, something that was really alive. So Moses uses a different word here to make that obvious. That's the first point. The second thing is the interesting way Moses talked about the fish. The word Moses used to describe the animals God made in the ocean, the creatures of the sea, includes lots of other meanings, meanings like dragon or serpent. In fact, the Hebrew word associated with creatures of the sea was used in the legends of Canaan to describe a sea monster. 
For people living around the area, the ocean was a source of fear and power. In Canaan, one god was depicted as half-fish and half-man. And as a part of the origin story of their religion, another one of the gods, Baal, had to defeat the tyrannical god of the sea. If you went further east, in Babylon, Marduk only became king of the gods after fighting and destroying sea monsters. In Moses' day, rather than gods themselves or things that gods had defeated, the creatures of the sea were all things Moses' god made on purpose. Things that were all under the control of Moses' god. Marduk and Baal weren't very powerful if the things that threatened their survival were things Moses' god could create. And with that tweak on the other religions, the fifth day ends with a blessing. God tells the fish and birds to multiply and reproduce. And this left only land, only one place, that still needed filling. Day six of creation breaks down into two parts. First, Moses describes God creating three types of land animals. God makes livestock, the sheep and cows and goats, the big domesticated animals. God makes the beasts of the earth, a word that isn't used much in the Bible but refers to all the wild animals. And God makes the creeping things that are probably mostly what you think they are, the small animals like worms and snakes and insects. That's the first part of day six. If you look at the story so far, you can start to see a progression. First God makes the world, then God forms the sky, then he fills the sea and the air, and finally, here, God fills the land. Each step in the story works closer and closer to the climax, to the main attraction, to the point in the story where God makes humans. Before I get to that part, though, a little context might help. In ancient times, all around the Middle East, when kings accomplished something, when they extended the borders of their empire or defeated some enemy, they would get their craftsmen together and have them document everything so no one would forget their achievement. We have examples of this sort of thing going back thousands of years, including some that might reach even back to the time of Moses. Let me give three examples. First, in 1868, a large black stone covered in writing was found in what's today the country of Jordan. When that writing was translated, it told the story of Misha, a Moabite king who led a revolt to free his people from oppression about 2,800 years ago. A couple hundred years after Misha, when Babylon was being renovated by Nebuchadnezzar, that king made sure his name and title were stamped on thousands of the bricks they used so everyone would know who was responsible for the accomplishment. Finally, during the Persian Empire, Darius the Great had craftsmen carve an image 50 feet high and 80 feet long, around 300 feet up the side of a mountain. Next to a picture of Darius with a group of captives, there's a message, written in three different languages, that boasts all about what Darius has achieved. In ancient times, Kings made these monuments to leave a legacy. It was something to make sure they were remembered. But, as Moses describes it, they were all just copying what God did first. On day six of creation, 
after making the animals, God came down to the earth, gathered up some of the ground he'd brought up from the bottom of the sea, and sculpted a self-portrait. He made a statue of himself. Since creation is done, just like an artist finishing a painting, God signed his name. And then, God breathed into the sculpture and brought it to life. The people Moses is talking to here, they probably see the parallels in this part of the story. They know about making monuments. The Egyptians were all over that idea. But now they see something new. Now Moses is telling them that they are that monument. They are something made by God as the pinnacle of everything he'd done on the earth. They are the thing God made so no one would forget him. But there's even more significance to this. As I mentioned earlier, when God made something during the first three days of creation, he would name it. Names were important. They were a sign of ownership or control. We still do this. Today, we name our pets. When Columbus discovered land in the Caribbean, he claimed ownership and named it. When the English took New Amsterdam from the Dutch, they changed its name to New York. When the Dutch got it back nine years later, they changed its name to New Orange. A year later, the English took control for good, and it became New York again. God named things at the start of creation. But here, God does something else. When God made Adam, the first human, God declared him to be the ruler of the world. And after delegating that authority, God took a step back and left all the naming to Adam. The animals were supposed to be Adam's subjects, while Adam was subject to God. Stop there for a moment. If you're in Moses' audience, think about how this part of the story hits you. In Egypt, you grew up hearing that you were made by accident. If you go back a few generations to Babylon, the story there doesn't get any better. In Babylon, you were made on purpose, but you were made to be a slave. Moses tells you something different. You weren't made by accident. You weren't made to be a slave. You were made to be a king and a friend of God. This is the climax of the story. Moses undermined the accomplishments of the gods of all those other religions and then dismissed the gods themselves. He tore down the other religions before getting to this part of the story where he got to tell people, and you can imagine him saying it with a light in his eye, where he got to tell people that humans were the peak of creation, the best of all the things God made. As the story goes on, God brings the animals to Adam to name, and Adam goes through and names them. He names them, and as he comes to the end of the line, Adam has this realization that he's alone, that all the animals were made in pairs, but he's the only human. At the end of most days of creation, Moses says God looked at what he had made and saw that it was good. In the story, it's as if God was checking his work and approving of it before he moved on. Over and over again, Moses uses the phrase, and God saw that it was good. And the whole story, there's only one time when that's not true. Right here, 
This is the only time God says something is not good. It's not good that Adam's alone. As Adam discovers there's no other human, God makes him fall asleep and he does some surgery. God takes a rib from Adam and he uses that rib to make a woman, to make the second human. This part of the story is unique. In the ancient Middle East, this is the only complete account of how women are created. There's a specific story about how the first woman came to be. And for scholars who study these things, there's some interesting symbolism. According to their understanding, God was trying to show that men and women were meant to be equal. If God had used a foot to make the woman, it might mean that women were meant to be walked on. If he had used part of the head, it would mean women were meant to lead. God didn't want the woman to lead or follow. He wanted her to stand side by side with Adam. This wasn't just the story of how men were rulers while women were left in the background. Women were supposed to be rulers too. And there's also some interesting biology. If you take out a rib and leave the sleeve of tissue and muscle around it intact, the rib will regrow. It'll regenerate itself. Even today, when a surgeon needs a bone to use for a graft, they'll often use a rib since they know it'll grow back. When God did surgery, when God took something out of Adam to make the first woman, not only did God use a bone that grew back, but he grew the rib he took into a whole person. In effect, God was grafting the two people together. He was using part of the first person to make the other half of that person. The story ends on the seventh day. Everything is green and lush. Animals and humans move about. God looks at the world and nothing happens. On the seventh day of creation, God rests. It's not that he's tired. God's work is done. There's nothing formless left to form. There's no emptiness left to fill. So God rests. It's a bit like an attorney resting his case. It's not that he's tired. It's that there's nothing left to do. On the seventh day, God looks at the world he's made. He sees that it's very good. And he makes the day holy. He creates the first holy day. The first holiday. God makes it right after making humans as a day to rest, a chance for people to take a break, and a chance for them to spend time with the God who created them. As Moses told it, that's the start of world history. In Moses' story, he's picked apart the religions all around him. He's taken all the achievements of their gods and assigned those accomplishments to his God. And he's moved humans from the lowest spot up to the highest point anything can reach, the place right next to God himself. When he finished telling this story, you can imagine the excitement people would feel, the thrill at knowing what they were really meant to be. But then, as they think through everything Moses has said, maybe they begin to wonder. Even though Moses went through and dismissed those other religions, even though he's given his God credit for all the accomplishments of creation, how do you know it wasn't Moses who was wrong? What if Moses is just making the whole thing up? What if this is all just propaganda? 
maybe he's just leading you on. Maybe he's just saying what people want to hear. At this point, you'd want Moses' story to be true. Who wouldn't want to trade being a slave for being a friend of God? But then there's that nagging feeling. This whole thing could be a myth. There has to be something more than Moses' word. There has to be proof. And for Moses' audience, before long, there was proof. As that nation, those two million former slaves, left Egypt behind, they ended up in the desert of the Sinai Peninsula. In the desert, they started to run low on food. And it was then that a new food started appearing. Each day, covering the ground all around the camp, food came down from heaven. It showed up every morning but one. On the sixth day, there was twice as much food, and on the seventh, there was none. That was the evidence people needed. That was the proof that the seven-day week in Moses' story was a real thing. For the next 40 years, week in and week out, God provided food for everyone, and he provided twice as much before each weekly holiday. And that's great. That miracle should convince Moses' audience. But it doesn't do anything for us. Making up a story about creation and then using another story about a miracle doesn't work as proof today. So how do we know that Moses' story is right? In Moses' day, the seven-day week was proof. And today, people sometimes try to use the seven-day week in our calendar to make the same point. There is a good argument for it. It's easy to see that days and nights come from the rotation of the Earth, months come from the orbit of the Moon, and years come from the time it takes the Earth to circle the Sun. But there's no good explanation for where we get the seven-day week. You can't get it from the moon because a lunar cycle from new moon to new moon is a day and a half longer than four weeks. You can't get the seven-day cycle from the sun either. If you divide a year into seven-day weeks, you always end up with a few days left over. And nothing in astronomy gives us a seven-day cycle. So, as the argument goes, since the seven-day week doesn't come from astronomy, it must be evidence that Moses' story is true. And that almost works. But then again, the week in the calendar we use could be a fluke. Maybe Moses arbitrarily made the week seven days long in his calendar, and the system went first to the Jews, from the Jews to the Christians, from the Christians to the Roman Empire, and then from the Roman Empire to Europe and around the world with the European colonies. If you wanted to, you could say that Moses' story just happened to catch on. And that's the only reason we use the seven-day week today. And you'd have a point. Sources differ on some of this, but there used to be other calendars with weeks that didn't use seven days. Before Christianity came to the Romans, Rome used weeks that were eight days long. Egypt and China have used ten-day weeks, and the ancient Assyrians liked using five-day cycles. The Babylonians did use something like a seven-day week since they kept the 7th, 14th, 21st, and 28th of every month. But those days were considered evil days, when certain important people like the king were restricted in what they could do. And 
Besides that, since the Babylonians based their months off the moon, the week didn't repeat endlessly, but started over with every new month. In history, the seven-day week was just one among a bunch of options. The fact that it's in our calendar doesn't prove anything. So, if history's too messy, maybe we should try science. Look at nature. Nature is full of rhythms. There are short daily ones that govern heart rate and body temperature, and long multi-year rhythms, like those that help cicadas all hatch together every 13 or 17 years. Some of these rhythms are obvious, like feeling sleepy in the afternoon, but others are hidden and hard to find. And among the not-so-obvious patterns, a lot of seven-day cycles keep showing up. In humans, there are seven-day rhythms that affect mood and blood pressure, the growth of children's tooth enamel, the ability to think, how long you sleep at night, body temperature, and the function of the immune system. There's a weekly pattern to peaks and swelling after some types of surgery. Weekly rhythms govern when some people have seizures and affect the probability that a transplanted organ will be rejected. Researchers wonder if the seven-day cycle in blood pressure might be useful for monitoring circulatory diseases, and they think the weekly rhythms may be helpful in figuring out how to time cancer treatments for when they'll be the most effective. In addition, the research suggests these patterns aren't just part of our calendar. It's not that we live in a seven-day culture so our bodies follow a seven-day rhythm. The cycles still show up when people are isolated from society, and they also appear in algae, insects, fish, birds, and other mammals besides humans. In short, scientists don't know where this pattern comes from. It just seems nature has some sort of seven-day rhythm built in. So, if that seven-day week is real, that leaves us with a question. Where did all those other weeks, the weeks of five, eight, or ten days, come from? Let's start with Rome. Around 2,000 years ago, in Rome, the high priest of the state religion controlled the calendar. In politics in Rome, being politics, the priest would change the length of the year to affect a politician's term in office. And by the time Julius Caesar became that priest, the calendar was so mangled, January came in the fall. For political reasons, the Romans messed with the length of the year. But at other points in history, sometimes it was the week that was manipulated. A little over 200 years ago, at the end of the 18th century, as part of the French Revolution's efforts to get rid of religion, the nation switched everything to the metric system and tried to use minutes of 100 seconds, hours of 100 minutes, days of 10 hours, and weeks of 10 days. They used that calendar in one way or another for over 10 years, but they couldn't make it work, and they gave up in 1806. 120 years later, in 1929, to increase productivity and discourage the practice of religion, the Soviet Union changed their calendar to use five-day weeks. Two years later, they made the week six days long. That system went on for nine years before they gave up and switched back to using the seven-day cycle, too. In our world, the seven-day week is so connected to religion that in the last 250 years, France and Russia changed their calendars to try to get rid of it. They wanted to eliminate something that reminded them of a history 
they couldn't accept. In the ancient past, we don't know where all those other weeks came from. But maybe, as long ago as it was, maybe Egypt and Babylon invented those different weeks for the same reason. Maybe they couldn't accept a history that pointed people toward the true God. In 1938, as part of the World's Fair in New York, the Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company constructed a seven and a half foot tube just over eight inches in diameter. They made the tube out of a special corrosion-resistant copper alloy and lined it with a glass sleeve to protect the contents from the elements. The space that was left inside was filled with things from life in the 20th century. They put in samples of newspapers and magazines, cosmetics, a popular novel, and a woman's hat. They put in some movies of modern life and lots of images on microfilm. When everything was complete, the glass was filled with nitrogen and sealed closed. The copper tube was closed up and the whole thing was buried in a park, 50 feet underground, so no one would disturb it, and as far as possible, nothing would happen to it for the next 5,000 years until it was supposed to be opened. This was the first time capsule. A Westinghouse publicist coined that term for this event. But maybe there's an even older time capsule that we're just now discovering. The jury is still out on all the research into seven-day rhythms, but maybe, knowing that people would forget the real story of history, knowing that false versions of the past would be invented, maybe God put the proof of the seven days of creation into his own time capsule. Maybe God hid the evidence in biology and used us, the monument he made, as the best evidence of creation. In short, maybe God put the story inside us. Today, there are a lot of versions of history. And this version Moses tells, this is one of the most well-known. For a long time, the stories from Egypt, Canaan, and Babylon were pretty much forgotten. Besides what parts filtered down through other languages, the Egyptian story was lost in unreadable hieroglyphics until Napoleon's engineers discovered the Rosetta Stone in 1799 during the French invasion of Egypt. In Mesopotamia, the Babylonian stories were lost until an ancient library was excavated in the 1840s. In Canaan, the story of Baal was only rediscovered in 1929 when some tablets were found in northern Syria. That's less than 100 years ago. For a long time, these stories were largely forgotten, and only Moses' story was around. And now that we know them, people are sometimes inclined to think Moses adapted his story from these other sources. There are similarities. Babylon remembers an ocean, a version of the weak, and that humans were, at least partly, made of dust. Egypt remembers chaotic water, humans made from the ground, and a first god named Atom. If you were to spread out even further around the world, people remember humans as the final act of creation, that they were supposed to have a particular place in the world, and an emphasis on harmony between humans and nature. There are similarities in these stories, because there was probably some memory of the real history in all of them. But the differences in Moses' story still stand out. Moses doesn't talk about selfish and violent gods who competed or fought one another. Moses tells of a God who made the world on his own, out of nothing. 
At the start of the story, when Moses named the ocean, he didn't talk about a monster who had to be killed to create the world. He talked about a god hovering over the sea. It's more than just a description. In Hebrew, that word, hover, described an eagle protecting its nest. Moses started the story of creation with the image of a mother protecting its young and ends it with a God who made humans as his greatest treasure. There are a lot of versions of history. Moses explained things other stories didn't. He left evidence showing that his story was right. And for any who would listen, he told them they weren't slaves. He told them God meant for them to be his friends. Friends so close that God set aside one day per week to spend time with them. Moses' story of how the planet began tells about the start of physics with light and air. He talks about geology when the ground appears. When plants were made, there's a break, so God could give a little botany lesson. Moses' story is about the start of a lot of sciences. But really, at its core, it's the start of theology. It was the beginning of the study of God. And it's not a history that comes from Moses. Moses wasn't there. Adam didn't arrive till the very end, so it wasn't from him either. This study of God, this was God's story. It was God's own version of events. From Moses' day, over 3,000 years ago, until today, there's been a debate about who God really is. God's character is on trial, and this story, this is the opening argument. It tells of a world that was once made perfect. It talks about a God who loved humans and wanted them as his friends. That was the beginning of history. It was a story about the past so we would know where we came from and where to turn when that perfect world was broken and we needed someone to fix it. With creation all set, the next episode of Wider Bible is all about how everything that was once so nice became the not-so-nice world of today. In the meantime, if you have a question about something from this episode or you're just curious to learn more, WiderBible.com has references, links, and show notes full of extra information, tangents, and details that didn't fit into the podcast. The website also has a link for asking questions and a place to subscribe so you can be the first to know when something new comes out. I'm Adam Scholl. Thanks for listening.